September 15th, 1963. It was the day of the Youth Day Sunday service at 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Four little girls, Addie Mae Collins, Denise McNair, Carol Robertson, and Cynthia Wesley, they were all there getting ready for their big day. Soon hundreds of parents would come out to see their children do something very similar to what just happened here a few minutes ago. And so they were busily making final adjustments on their beautiful white dresses when the bomb exploded. The dynamite left a hole in the floor five feet wide and two feet deep. It decapitated poor Cynthia. Her parents could only tell it was their little girl by the shoes she was wearing and a ring on her finger. News reports at the time said that All the church's stained glass windows had been blown out except one, which depicted Jesus leading a group of little children. But the face of Jesus had been blown out. In the aftermath, the entire nation and indeed internationally, people expressed outrage. How could such a tragedy happen? What a horrible act of racial terrorism. There was one person, a young lawyer named Charles Morgan Jr. He had been scheduled to give a talk in front of a young men's business club, all white men, in Birmingham. At the last minute, he changed his speech. And when he got up in front of a group of his white peers, he said, who threw that bomb? Was it a Negro? Was it a white? And he looked at that room and he said, we all did it. He went on, and he didn't leave the church out of it. He asked them, did those ministers visit the families of the Negroes in their hour of travail? Did many of them go to the homes of their brothers and express their regrets in person or pray with the crying relatives? Do they admit Negroes into the ranks of their church? What Charles Morgan Jr. was getting at was the idea of complicity in racism. You see, it wasn't those men in the room that he was speaking to who physically planted the bomb, but in some sense they might as well have for all the things that they permitted leading up to that moment. You realize there was an area in Birmingham that had already earned the nickname Bombingham. This wasn't the first time. And it was every time someone told a a joke at the expense of someone of a different color and people laughed or stood by. It was every time someone used a racial slur. It was every time a lynching occurred and someone said in the back of their minds they got what they deserved. That's what Charles Morgan Jr. was talking about. And that is the idea of Christian complicity in racism. You see, it's not that every single person who called themselves a Christian was out there putting on white robes and hoods or burning crosses in the lawns, but it was the fact that, that, that the silence, the apathy, the fear, all contributed to a context of compromise. You see, it's too easy to look at these obvious forms of racism and say, it's all in the past, it's all over. 
What we have to do is realize that we're part, our action or inaction is part of creating this context of compromise. So this book that I wrote, The Color of Compromise, it says don't look away. Don't look away at the hard parts of history, even and especially when they implicate us or our own faith communities or traditions. And the fact of the matter is, if the future is going to be different from the past, then we have to learn the lessons of history, especially the moments when Christians have compromised their convictions in the face of racial oppression. So, what's going to happen today? Um, The book's been out about six months now, and what's interesting to me is among the many questions that I get, some of which we'll get to later on this evening, uh, one of the questions I rarely get is, what is the color of compromise? I mean, it's right there in the title, the color of compromise. Okay, what is the color of compromise? Is it hot pink? Baby blue? Fuchsia? I don't even know what color fuchsia is. It could be right in my face and I wouldn't know what to call it. But what is the color of compromise? What I'm going to propose to you this evening is that the color of compromise is at least three things. One, and apologies in advance to anyone's national flag. This is just pure coincidence as far as the colors. So don't, don't think, don't read too much into it. The color of compromise first is green. Green for the greed of slave traders, plantation owners, and anyone who profited off of the economic exploitation of people of African descent, which I'll get into, but that's essentially what race-based chattel slavery was, was an economically exploitative labor system. Secondly, the color of compromise is white for white supremacy. We're going to name that this evening. White supremacy tells this story of racial difference that places white people on the top or at the center and people of color, various gradations toward the bottom and marginalized. And finally, the color of compromise is red. Red for the blood that flowed as a result of the physical violence that it took to maintain white supremacy. This is something that we don't like to talk about. It's ugly, it's bloody. But in order for this system of oppression to remain in place, you had to enforce it through physical violence. Green, white, and red. And then I'll end with what we can do now. What does that mean for us today? So we got a lot to do. Buckle in, let's get to it. Number one. The color of compromise is green. This quote is chilling by James W.C. Pennington. He says, the being of slavery, its soul and body lives and moves in the chattel principle, the property principle, the bill of sale principle, the cart whip, the starvation, the nakedness. Those are in its inevitable consequences. What Pennington is getting at in that quote is that you cannot understand slavery unless you understand that it was based on this idea that people could be turned into property. Many people say that slavery 
was America's original sin. I think it might be more accurate to say that slavery was America's original symptom. And its original sin is greed. I mean, you can go all the way back. How are we standing on this land we are now? It was profitable to take it. Why did people steal millions of human beings, take them across an ocean and enslave them for life? It was profitable to do so. Now, that is not to say that racism and and prejudice and bigotry did not exist before American slavery. I mean, we don't need any excuse as human beings not to like one another. That always happens. But it just got reinforced and perpetuated because you could line your pockets. All right. Now, you got to understand what was happening with slavery. Look, in a capitalist system, your goal is to maximize your profit and minimize your loss. If you've ever been in charge of a budget or, or seen one, if you think of a pie chart, the biggest slice of that pie typically goes to wages and benefits for your employees. So what's the best way to cut costs? You just don't pay them. That's what happened with American race-based chattel slavery. So this is why, and I'll give you this as a bonus because I already like you. (laughs) This is why when somebody tells you or tries to say to you that the Civil War wasn't about slavery, it's about states' rights, first of all, you say the states' right to do what? (laughs) Enslave people. (laughs) Secondly, You tell them to Google the Mississippi Articles of Secession. Now, I go to school at the University of Mississippi. I lived for five years in Jackson, Mississippi. I live in the Mississippi Delta on the Arkansas side because it's about the river. It's an alluvial plain, not necessarily the state, but that's extra, extra. So now, you go to the Mississippi Articles of Secession, and it says, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery. Listen to this. The greatest material interest in the world. Its labor supplies the product, which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. You hear those words? Material interest, product, commerce. So the people in the Confederacy were very clear about why they were fighting the war. It was to preserve the institution of slavery because it was profitable. Now... Race-based chattel slavery turned a person into property. That's why you get slave ships that look like this. Most ships weren't originally built to transport hundreds of human beings. So a lot of times what they would do is retrofit the ship, but they didn't do it with the comfort of the passengers in mind. These weren't passengers. These were property. And so what do you try to do if you have cans of food or barrels of gunpowder or something? You try to pack in as much as you can for efficiency, and that's the same thing they did to human beings. Now, I think we have this idea that slavery was bad, but too often it's just this impression without the details. So there was a man named Olauda Equiano or Gustavus Vasa. He wrote an autobiography of his experience as an enslaved person. And he described, he was, he was in, of the 
uh, in, in what is now Nigeria. He was kidnapped at the age of 11, brought here, and he described that passage. First of all, he was kidnapped along with his sister, and they were separated. And this is what he said. The next day proved a greater sorrow than I had yet experienced, for my sister and I were then separated while we lay clasped in each other's arms. It was in vain that we besought them not to part us. She was torn from me and immediately carried away while I was left in a state of distraction not to be described. I cried and grieved continually. And for several days, I did not eat anything but what they forced into my mouth. But here's what really stuck with me. See, Equiano and enslaved people, they knew that their kidnappers and enslavers professed Christ. But they also saw the hypocrisy of doing so while enslaving people and separating families. So he said this, he asked them, O ye nominal Christians, might not an African ask you, learned you this from your God? Who says unto you, do unto men as you would men should do unto you. There's another quote that um, I think really helps us understand the color of compromise being green and this idea of greed. It's by a historian named Forrest Wood. He says, cynical, though it may sound, it's not an exaggeration to submit that the critical fact in determining who opposed slavery and who supported it was a consequence entirely of political and economic factors. All the Christian conviction in the world could not dent the purse of one slaveholder. You look today, what happens with church folk if you say the wrong thing? The first thing they do, stop donating money. Still happens today. All of the Christian conviction in the world couldn't dent the purse of one slaveholder. Today, how far an institution and organization goes in racial justice often stops when they start losing money. Think about Christian colleges and schools. We'll go as far as we can until our alumni stop giving. I get it. You need money to operate. But all the Christian conviction in the world not dent the purse of one slaveholder. This is why I say you can't talk about racial justice if you don't talk about money. What I've discovered in this work is that the only other R word among Christians that's more controversial than racism is the other R word, reparation. Now, we can debate how they could practically be distributed and what's the best method to address the issue. But what should not be up for debate is that for more than two centuries, enslaved black people labored and built the wealth of this country without compensation. Even after the Civil War and emancipation, the dream of 40 acres and a mule, it never materialized. Black people emerged from enslavement, but they remained in bondage to poverty. True freedom remained a dream. 
The color of compromise is green. But the color of compromise is also white. One of the themes in the book is that racism never goes away, it just adapts. Racism never goes away, it just adapts. Why? Because if racism is a sin, then we would expect sin in some way, shape, or form to remain with us until Jesus comes back. But the idea behind that idea of racism adapting is so that we don't get stuck only thinking of racism as people in physical change, only thinking of racism as crosses burning on lawns. Because if that's your conception, then you are tempted to think, oh, racism's over. We've whipped it. Oh, yeah, maybe some fringe folks, but yeah, in general, it's not a problem. But you got to understand racism adapts. As long as the idea of white supremacy persists, racism will remain. It'll just shift forms. So one of the things, uh, descriptions that I like for white supremacy is what my friend who's a pastor and he wrote the book White Awake, Daniel Hill, he said, white supremacy is the narrative of racial difference. It's the stories that we tell about ourselves and other people based on superficial differences. Right? Now, let me put you on game, as the young people say. I don't know if they still say that. <laughs> I'm not that young. But one of the reasons why racism never goes away is because that narrative of racial difference never goes away. The stories that we tell about ourselves and other people. So if you look at this very sophisticated technical graphic up front, there are three major manifestations, I think, in U.S. history of racism. First of all, race-based chattel slavery, which we've talked about Next, you move on to segregation, which is uh, the, the period of Jim Crow and legalized segregation, which happened after the Civil War up to about 1954 in Brown v. Board. And then the current age of a racialized society or a society in which systemic racism is baked in. Now, these are different manifestations of racism, but what is consistent? It's the narrative of racial difference. As long as we tell ourselves these story, uh, stories about race, there's always going to be racism. It's just going to pop up in different ways throughout time. So what is this? What does this mean? White supremacy does a couple things. It, it, it gives us this idea of whiteness. And what whiteness does is, first of all, it obscures ethnicity. So this is for people who are characterized or labeled white. When groups of Europeans came over to what became the United States, it, it was more advantageous of them to start calling themselves white and leave behind their ethnic and national distinctiveness. So you weren't French or British after a while. You were white. You weren't German or Swiss after a while. You were white. People coming over changed their names to be more white. Even groups that originally weren't categorized in the same way, like the Irish, became white 
What whiteness does is erases or obscures ethnicity. And what happened was, it's very pernicious, when you trade your ethnic identity, what you leave behind is your language, your music, your clothing, your culture. And what do you take up? You take up whiteness as your culture. Now, the problem with that is, and I'll get to this in a minute, whiteness can only exist in relation to anti-blackness. So when you take up whiteness as your ethnic or cultural identity to, to replace it, then you're also necessarily, even if you're not intentionally doing it, taking up anti-blackness. And that's the second consequence of whiteness, is that it creates this equal and opposite category of black. The narrative of racial difference or white supremacy says that people of African descent have inherently less dignity, less worth, less ability, less of everything than white people. Now, I'm quite aware that we are in a very multi-ethnic context here in Northern California and at this church, but understand everyone's affected by this. So whether you are of mixed racial and ethnic heritage, whether you are of Native American or Asian or Latin American descent, you're all caught up in this. And the way whiteness works is on a continuum. And so there are people who are coded as white. Typically, that has to do with your appearance. The more white you look, then it doesn't even matter. There are some people who are of different races and ethnicities, but they appear to be what we have created as, as white. And so they're labeled as white. But then you have other groups of people, and the idea of this continuum is that the closer you can be coded as white, the more white you are. But black people are the furthest. They're the antithesis. White, black. And every, there's a spectrum in between, which means that doesn't mean that you don't have spirit suppression. But I always differentiate. I say black people and people of color. I differentiate because the histories are different. The dynamics are different. That's, that's 301 level. It's not 101. There's one more thing that whiteness does, and it maintains power through violence, but I'll get to that later. So what does this look like in action? Uh, many people don't realize that um, the KKK went through three iterations. The second, and, and possibly the most widespread, happened during the era of Jim Crow. And in 1915, there was the rebirth, or the second coming, of the KKK. And I found it quite interesting what, what happened there. So first, there was the, the, the first real blockbuster film in U.S. history was called Birth of a Nation. That came out in 1915. It was a three-hour silent film that detailed the supposed birth of the Ku Klux Klan, and it was a first-class work of propaganda. It romanticized the South. Think of Gone with the Wind. And it villainized the North, Union soldiers, and black people. And it was a story used to reinforce the supposed right of white people, especially white men, to control the nation. And Christians, specifically white Christians, embraced the myth of white supremacy. We might label it more accurately and, and very contemporarily relevant white Christian nationalism. And they organized that in the form of the Ku Klux Klan. 
Now, how did they do that? There was a ceremony on Thanksgiving Day in 1915, a former Methodist circuit rider. So he's a preacher. He gets a group of his friends. They go up on the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, which was uh, covered. The face of it is covered with heroes of the Confederacy. On the top of Stone Mountain, Georgia, they do a couple of things. Number one, they burn a cross. A tradition taken out of Scotch-Irish lore. Number two, they built an altar. And on that altar, they put two items. A Bible and an American flag. The Bible was open to Romans chapter 12, a chapter that states, among other things, be devoted to one another in love. Now, um, G.T. Gillespie was the president emeritus of Belhaven College, now University, in Jackson, Mississippi. He was Presbyterian, and in 1954, Presbyterian clergymen gathered for their regular meeting of churches, and they asked Dr. Gillespie to give an address. The title of his address was A Christian View of Segregation. His rationale in that speech is just breathtaking. He admitted at the top, he said, the Bible contains no clear mandate for or against segregation as between white and Negro races. In other words, he said, we can't find it really in the Bible that we should be segregated according to race. But he didn't let that stop him. He went to so-called natural law arguments. He said, segregation is one of nature's universal laws. And, And here's how he exemplified it. He said, there are many varieties in the bird family. Under natural conditions, though, so far as is known, bluebirds never mate with redbirds, doves never mate with blackbirds, nor mockingbirds with jays. Now, somebody should give Dr. Gillespie a science lesson. Those are different species. They don't mate. It has nothing to do with their color. But this analogy invoked the specter of interracial marriage. To frighten segregation, segregationists about the possibility of black men sleeping with white women. And it, and it refers to color, the white dove, the black bird, the red bird, the blue bird as an allusion to the racial issues at hand. Then he goes on. And he said that even though scripture didn't explicitly say white and black people should be segregated, you could make valid inferences. For instance, in the book of Leviticus, it admonishes the Israelites not to mix diverse things like wool and linen, as well as different breeds of cattle and seeds. And then reasoning from this, Gillespie says the same principle would apply with even greater force to human relations. In other words, if different fabrics, animals and plants couldn't mix in the Old Testament, it was best for black and white people not to mix either. Gillespie also referred to the warnings against intermarriage between the Israelites and non-Jewish tribes as a reason to prohibit interracial relationships and integration. So the Bible is being used as an excuse for segregation. The narrative of racial difference or white supremacy remains. As Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative has said again and again, and I think he's right, the North won the Civil War. But the South won the narrative war. Contemporary application, Confederate monuments, take them down. Why? Because it perpetuates the narrative of racial difference. 
These are monuments literally in stone to promote the idea of white supremacy. It says this public space belongs to, is dominated by whites. My commute to school, I drive past a truck way station which has the Mississippi state flag. You know what it looks like? The only flag left that still has the Confederate battle emblem. Entrance to campus has a Confederate monument just a couple of hundred yards away from a monument dedicated to James Meredith. You know who he was? First black person to integrate the University of Mississippi. Just a couple of years ago, some frat boys thought it would be a good idea to hang a noose on it. The color of compromise is white. Lastly, the color of compromise is red. A moment ago, I had mentioned two effects of white supremacy, that it erases ethnicity and it creates this equal and opposite category of blackness. But there's one more effect of white supremacy we got to talk about. White supremacy says that in order to maintain power, in order to maintain control, violence is necessary. Physical violence has always been necessary for the maintenance of white supremacy. I'm sure in the Q&R we'll get to recommendations and whatnot, but I'll give you one now if you haven't already read it, Between the World and Me by ta Coates. Very short book. In that book, he has a quote that is quite chilling, but it gets at the heart of why we can't ignore the physical violence that's part of white supremacy. He says this, it's hard to face this, but all your phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. But I'll tell you something. As a black man living in America, who's also a Christian, I believe in the doctrine of the image of God. From Genesis chapter 1. And one of the things I've learned through experience and study is that the image of God can be defaced, but it can never be erased. It can be denigrated, but it can never be denied. So what happens with people of color who are experiencing oppression because of racism and white supremacy, deep down, somehow, we know this ain't right. That we too are bearers of the image of God. And so what happens is we rise up, we resist. But you can't have that in a white supremacist society. That resistance has to be put down. It can be put down through a lot of ways, intimidation, exclusion, economic sanctions, but ultimately, you put it down through violence. It brings us to one of the ugliest chapters of American history. Lynching. Let me tell you about Luther and Mary Holbert. 
And I do this because we can't simply have the impression that there was lynching this thing that happened and it was bad. It's heartrending. So the exact details of this lynching, which occurred in 1904, will probably never be known, as with most lynchings. But what we do know is that it occurred in Sunflower County, Mississippi. It had to do with a love triangle between three sharecroppers, two men, one woman. One of the men had beef with the other guy. He actually went and got the plantation owner to come and intercede. At the end of this confrontation in one of the men's cabins, both the accuser and the plantation owner were dead. That was an automatic death sentence for this man, Luther Holbert, and the woman he was with, Mary Holbert. They went on the run, but Jim Crow justice was quick and certain. Uh, the plantation owner's brother, Woods Caperton Eastland, he pursued the Holberts with bloodhounds and a posse. Mary disguised herself as a man. They hid in the swamps, but the Holberts were captured three days later. And then what happened next is a horror of inhumanity. So the lynching didn't happen right away. They actually delayed it. They waited till Sunday, the Lord's Day, and they waited till after church so more people could come. Then they chose a location for maximum intimidation for black people. It wasn't in a field or even the town square. It was on the property of a black church. More than a thousand people showed up to gawk at this lynching of Luther and Mary Holbert. First, they tied up the Holberts, and that's when the worst of the brutality began. They cut off each of their fingers and toes, gave them out as souvenirs. Then they beat the bodies of Luther and Mary so mercilessly that one of the eyes of Luther hung out of its socket. And the Vicksburg Evening Post reported, quote, the most excruciating form of punishment consisted in the use of a large corkscrew in the hands of some of the mob. This instrument was bored into the flesh of the man and woman in the arms, legs, and body, and then pulled out, the spirals tearing out big pieces of raw quivering flesh every time it was withdrawn. Finally, the Holberts, who were actually still alive, were taken to a pyre. The white men cruelly forced two black men under threat of death to drag the Holberts to these fires. Then they burned Mary first so that Luther could see his beloved killed. Then they burned him. This is just one of the nearly 4,000 recorded lynchings that we know about. Racial violence was sexualized, though. Men, women, and children were lynched, but a special form of violence was reserved for women. Some of you may have heard about Recy Taylor. And I, again, apologize, but this is the history that makes fighting racism so urgent. September 3rd, 1944, Reese Taylor was on her way home from church in Abbeville, Alabama. 
Historian Danielle McGuire wrote that Taylor had been walking with two other churchgoers when a green sedan filled with seven young white men pulled to a stop on the road. Holding her hostage at the point of a shotgun, they accused Taylor, who had been with her companions and at the church all day, of stabbing a white man earlier that night. There's no way she could have done it. You get the idea. They drove her to a secluded pecan grove. There were seven of them. In the aftermath, as word of the atrocity spread, the NAACP dispatched an investigator named Rosa Parks, who would later launch what the black Chicago newspaper, the Chicago Defender, called the strongest campaign for equal justice to be seen in a decade. In the midst of oppression, God's people rise up for justice. We saw that with Rosa Parks, who wasn't just a little old lady who was tired on the bus one day. She spent her life dedicated to racial justice. Unfortunately, crimes such as the one Recy Taylor suffered had been all too common a feature in American life, stemming back to the earliest days of slavery. In the Jim Crow era, rape persisted as a sexualized form of racial terror. Women were targeted for reasons as varied as retribution for perceived offenses to drunken fits of lasciviousness. As activist Fannie Lou Hamer would later explain, a black woman's body was never hers alone. This is why the many white evangelical responses to the Black Lives Matter movement was so disheartening. It's important to realize, number one, that this stuff is not long ago. Recy Taylor, that's her pictured just a few years ago, she only passed away just a couple years ago. So this is an ancient history. But the responses to Black Lives Matter were so disappointing because of this history. And just this weekend, was it Friday? Five-year anniversary of Mike Brown's killing in Ferguson. What was so disheartening was... So many white evangelicals saw this as an isolated incident, and they said, well, 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 what did Mike Brown do? Or he was a criminal, or he deserved what he got. What they failed to recognize, and what many black people and other folks interested in justice already saw, was that this was part of a centuries-long pattern of injustice. And that the phrase, black lives matter, didn't mean that only black lives matter, but that black lives matter too. Just as much as anyone else's life. A hashtag that says so much with so few words. It's a protest. It's a protest against centuries of injustice. It's also a lament. God, do black lives matter? If they do, then where's the justice? I'll end with a few words about what that means for us today. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. A lot of folks like to quote King in the part where he says, you know, people judge not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. But he built up to that moment. And at the beginning, he, he, he made in, in no uncertain terms clear 
the reason why they had to gather for that march on Washington. And instead of just quoting him, let his, his words speak for themselves. We have also come to this hallowed spot to remind America of the fierce urgency of now. This is no time to engage in the luxury of cooling off or to take the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. Now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Now is the time to rise from the dark and desolate valley of segregation to the sunlit path of racial justice. Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of brotherhood. Now is the time make justice a reality for all of God's children. It would be fatal for the nation to overlook the urgency of the moment. This sweltering summit of the Negro's legitimate discontent will not pass until that is an invigorating autumn of freedom and equality. 1963 is not an end, but a beginning. Those who hoped that the Negro needed to blow off steam and will now be content will have a rude awakening if the nation returns to business as usual. 55, 56 years later, we can still say that we have to respond to the fierce urgency of now when it comes to racial justice. Here's my thing. The most frequent question I get in conversations like this is, is how do we do it? What do we do? Question of practicality, question of method. But when it comes to fighting racism, I don't think we have a how-to problem. I think we have a want-to problem. If I gave you five minutes to talk to somebody near you, you could come up with five or 10 or 12 or more anti-racist actions. You could. The only question is why we as a nation and as a church haven't committed ourselves more to it. And that's a problem of will. That's a problem of want to. We know what we can do. There's this little thing out here in this part of the country. You might have heard of it. It's called Google. If you want to know how to fight racism... It's very simple. You can read books, ask me for resources, look at documentaries, all of these things. The question is, will you? People often say that if they were alive during the civil rights movement, they would have marched with King. They would have been on the front lines. They would have been protesting. They would have been on the right side of justice. Well, brothers and sisters, in case you didn't know it already, we're in the midst of another wave of the civil rights movement. And we got a whole lot of issues to fight, not just racism. <laughs> we got issues, xenophobia, people hating their neighbor from across the border, people hating people of a different religion. And what are we going to do in this generation? 
We just saw all these thousands of people assembled at the March on Washington. You know about heroes from the past, like Fannie Lou Hamer, Coretta Scott King, Ida B. Wells, Frederick Douglass, and what they did. The question is, what will you do? And if we're in the midst of another wave of the civil rights movement, then if you're not part of the movement today, don't pretend you would have been part of it in the 1950s and 60s. The question, brothers and sisters, is not how to fight racism. The question is, will you fight it? Thank you.